when, when you're a project that you're still very early stage, but for whatever reason you launch the token and that token is down 90%, 95%, you know, market caps of 20 million or so, and you have 10% of that, like that's 2 million. Maybe that buys you another year, but you still have going to have to cut meaningful amounts of headcount and whatnot. And so in, in practically speaking, you're not even, you don't even want to sell 100% of your treasury, right? Um, so it's it's a very difficult position that a lot of teams are in right now that I think they're just going to have to close shop. Do you see, you see Mike is in Montana where it's negative 40 degrees right now? <laughs> it's crazy. Like, this is a real yeah. winter. <laughs> uh, we're talking <laughs> about weather here, folks. But yeah, it's. I think a lot of people are really exhausted and they just... The real question now becomes... Is 2023 going to be as bad of a year as 2022? Uh, naturally, I think people, you know, when things have gone very bad, I think you you just turn negative and it's hard to like see the light at the end of the tunnel. But uh, it's, a, it's an interesting question. I think a lot of people are asking themselves right now and I'm seeing across a lot of the different groups. I mean, is how will 2023 shake up? And I know we're going to talk about it tomorrow in the roundup of, of like predictions, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I don't have a good answer yeah. for that, to be honest. Yeah. Well, anyways, man, we missed you on the show here. Oh, you've been yeah. uh, gallivanting around the world. So uh, it's, it's good, <laughs> good, good to have you back. And uh, we, we missed you. We certainly missed you. We had a couple good episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have some amazing episodes lined up for, for January that I'm super pumped about, but in any in any case, it's it's good to have you back. How uh how you feeling about things? Have uh obviously you've taken like two weeks two weeks mm-hmm. off from the markets. Hopefully, close your screens a little bit. Um, yeah, just love to hear how you're how you're feeling right now. Yeah, uh, I guess I think uh, it was good to take two weeks off, just clear my mind a bit. Um, and as I come back, you know, you still look at some pretty some pretty bad headlines. Bank of Japan kind of raising rates, which is I think a pretty big pretty big shift in stance that they've probably been the only major central bank that has, you know, kept stubbornly like rates low, but they've now flipped. But yen obviously reacted to that. And so that's big. And then inflation numbers across the board just continue to persist higher. And the, you know, the UK numbers came out today, Mexico numbers came out today, there were, you know, record kind of levels of inflation and the markets kind of reacting pretty negatively to that. Uh, the Nasdaq's down like 3% today. So yeah, it's, uh, it's been interesting. I mean, obviously this is not a macro episode, nor am I a macro expert, but, um, yeah, it's been in many ways, just this continues to be, uh, the major headline and all other assets kind of trading in, in tandem with the Nasdaq and the S and P. So yeah, that's, that's been, there's a lot of other interesting developments in crypto, but on the macro front, yeah, things are continue to be uh fairly uh fairly bleak and doomish i guess yeah do you have any anecdotes from past cycles that help inform you as to like where in the cycle we're at right now well as it relates to macro no because most of my professional career i've invested in a low interest environment and so i don't have a lot of things to hold on to um certainly in investing yes like i think like prior cycles um, it, it's hard, really hard to time this. And I think, uh, there's a great episode of Stan Duncan Miller that came out this summer. We've talked about it in this show, but I think it's barely in circle. When you see someone like that, be very humble and say, these are kind of unprecedented times 
and he's seen a lot, mind you, right? And he's one of the more seasoned investors out there. Um, so I'm not here going to tell people that I have more insight than someone like him. Um, the question is, like, what does that mean for, for crypto as an asset class? I think a lot of the, it does feel like a lot of the sentiment is very negative, like extremely negative and people are exhausted. And that generally tends to coincide with, you know, the, the, everyone's looked at the kind of the, the cycle and the emotions like pain, disillusionment, despair, anger. You know, I think we are like, you know, in that state where the overwhelming sentiment is very negative. The positive thing is there's like two different crypto Twitter feeds. Uh, it, it, one is founders continuing to ship really interesting stuff and kind of unfazed. They're well capitalized. They just keep their heads down. And see, uh, there's like a lot of shifts that are going on at the macro level that I think bode well for particular verticals in crypto, like social um, and stablecoin adoption and, you know, a lot of the pruning of recursive leverage um, and probably good you know, regulation coming out that in next year that clarifies a lot of things. It could be positive for crypto. Um, so what, like impossible to predict where we are. Uh, leaning on prior cycles, it does feel to me like we're, you know, bottoming. Um, do we have another leg down? Maybe, possibly. Like it's always possible. But yeah, to me, it feels like we're, um, you know, bottoming, if you will. I don't know if you agree with that or what you think. What, what about not on the macro side, Santi? What about just like in, in, in crypto land? Um, do you have, and, and specifically, I'm curious if you, I'm curious on, on how you think about that. Like, do you try to time it with the macro and think about like crypto uh, fitting in with the macro and you're trying to time the bottom there almost? Or, or are you, do you, do you think about past anecdotes from, uh, from other cycles that you've experienced in crypto and not, not in macro, but in crypto? Yeah. I think the the big distinction now is the opportunity cost that you have on your capital. You know, before you were holding cash was not very compelling. You were paying, you're getting paid 0% of your bank account. Uh, bonds, you know, were not really compelling either. And so from that standpoint, now you have a the opportunity or clip 5% on cash deposits. And, and that's a big distinction now that plays in my thinking which is am i getting paid enough to take more risk and enter the market and mind you you know i de-risked a fair amount november of last year uh i was partially lucky but it was just by virtue of timing of events as i was transitioning and, and positioning my portfolio now that i you know came off of Parify and just was transitioning into just thinking about deploying my own capital and, and repositioning my portfolio um the the thing that I didn't want to be in a position, not knowing that things were going to get pretty bad, but just having the feeling that from a personal standpoint, I wanted to have more liquidity because most of my assets are illiquid. And so it never hurts to have a pocket of liquidity. And so it happened by partially by luck, I think. Um, and so now the question is, at what point do I enter the market? Uh, so that's different this cycle than past. Like past cycles, I was just holding a bag and just was not really looking to do much other than just see it through. Um, and now we're in a very similar state. Assets are down 80% from their highs, right? 80, sometimes 90% across the board, Bitcoin, ETH, and then all the other alts. 
Um, but the thing that is really that I'm really thinking about is am I getting paid enough to to enter and take risk back on in a meaningful size? Yeah, you might like t- cost ever your way in. I think that's always been a good strategy, thinking that you're never going to be able to like time it perfectly. You know, when you see an asset that you like go down eighty percent, you like that at the high. You you certainly should like it now if fundamentals haven't changed. Um, but but it's it's very tempting to just like sit on cash and get paid five percent until you. There's like a number of things that I want to get clarity on on the macro side. Um, but yeah, it's it's very tempting to just earn that five percent yield and then like rotate just the yield piece into risk assets you know certainly like cost averaging my way into eth or some of the other things that i like investing in early stage stuff um but yeah on the valuation side of things what is fairly similar to like january of 2019 is you're seeing a lot of assets trade even below their like ico prices or latest round valuations which is now you could argue a lot of valuations, latest round valuations were like propped up and like, you know, you shouldn't even look at that number as something real and maybe it will never recover to that level, but it's an anchor. psychologically, a lot of investors look at that. Um, and so um, it's fairly interesting to see a lot of really quality projects that can, are well capitalized. Some are even trading out, like have cash reserves and, like the book value of their assets is like higher or like one-to-one to like their market cap. That's fairly distressed, I think, and compelling. And we saw that in 2019. So those are the, I look at that and I say, okay, well, it feels to me like a lot of investors are in this state where they're bracing for survival and like, you know, like indiscriminately chopping stuff to just go to cash quickly, end the year, buy some time to just think and have some breathing room. And those are kind of the times where I think are the best investment opportunities where just people go to extremes, both on the up up and down. And I think we're in that state of extreme paranoia, pessimism, you know, and and, um, so it's, you know, we get to relive an opportunity to deploy the same strategy in stuff that you like. Hopefully you've done the work, you've done the homework. You know, the question that I like to ask myself is like, if you're patient, if you have more than one year of time horizon, you kind of, I think that's easier to see really good entry points. Like crypto is yet again, like in prior episodes, I thought, okay, the market cap of crypto is going to go down to a trillion. Then Terra happened. I said, no, let's revise that. I revised that to like 800. And we're sitting at, a little bit lower now, I think. What is it? Seven, eight, eight hundred and thirty-two billion, with some inflation, right? Because that's like circulating market cap. There's projects that have inflation, so four or five percent. So you know, roughly speaking, you're kind of at at a billion or so. Can it go down to seven fifty? Can it go down to six hundred? Most, yeah, obviously. But like, you know, in five years' time, do you think a crypto is not going to go away? Like. Things are very different today than what they were in 2019. You have multiple verticals. Like, yeah, okay, you had CryptoKitties back then, but you have like tangible NFT markets that while volumes come down, you have really good brands entering the space. You have former presidents issuing NFTs that we'll talk about in this episode. <laughs> like, you know, what's different this time that it than it is last time is that 
crypto as a whole is entering a new stage where it's finally being used and increasingly so as we look forward over the next like 12 to 24 months the, you and I have invested in projects and other projects that I'm not, not an investor in. I just have a feeling that we're going to see some really cool applications, front-facing applications that give people a really good understanding of what digital ownership means. Whether they appreciate the backend, they appreciate the tech, doesn't really matter. But like usability drives a lot of value. And I think that's secular of macro in many ways. Like, okay, are people going to shell out like 100,000 to buy NFTs? That's a very small crowd. Um, but that doesn't mean that NFTs need it. Like not all NFTs are going to be a hundred thousand like crypto punks, if you will, or board eight. Um, it, it feels to me like a lot of the tech infrastructure has been deployed over the last 10, 12 years. And you're finally in a position to deliver credible, workable, scalable consumer facing applications. And yeah. I think that's going to be independent of macro. Anytime you have a fun product that delivers really tangible value, people are going to use it. And, you know, I think the same is true for the internet. Yeah. Are you doing anything with your portfolio right now? Or are you just kind of staying put? Uh, well, by, by choice or just force, like a lot of the projects that I invest in are liquid. So I can't really do much on like rotating that piece. Um, so I'm like largely staying put. And we talked about this before we started recording, but I think a lot of the mistakes that I made historically over the years has been like doing too much, like over trading over, you know, and, and so it's really tempting because sitting in many ways, like just sitting tight is probably one of the hardest things to do because, you know, as a type A, like you always want to feel like you're doing stuff. Um, and, and I think sometimes that gets in the way, right? Uh, writing has helped to like, make sure that I understand why I did an investment and yeah, sure. Like I thinking probabilistically, like if, an, if a protocol has done a hundred X and what was the probability of that doing another 10 X, then you probably should manage risk, take chips off the table and invest in other stuff that has higher probability of giving you better return. But uh, yeah, right now I'm not doing much. I am seeing really interesting deals from like very seasoned founders that are coming into crypto at like 15 million, 20 million, 10 15, million value. 15, yeah. 15, 10. Those deals would have gotten done at 50 million. So like a 5X multiple, uh, you know, earlier this year. And I think that's that's fairly compelling. But but to be honest, the number of the in terms of deal flow, it's it's gone meaningfully down. Are the properties on the term sheets changing? Like the liquidity preferences and and, th and things like that. Like how much are you seeing that change? Because a year ago it was entirely in the founders' favor, right? People, you know, no board seats, like basically no, just like and anything I need to do to get into this deal, I would do as a, as a VC, right? Now the VCs have been on the wrong end of that for the last 12 months. And so I think you're, I, I'm slowly starting to see these provisions get put back in place in these term sheets. But I'm curious what you're saying. Yeah, that's a great question. Board seats, yes. Um, liquidation preferences, no. I think that's still one-to-one. -one. Um, pro rata rights, more so now. Uh, the, the biggest term that I think hasn't changed is liquidation preference. Like 
in traditional tech land in in pretty bad situations of liquidity crunches when capital markets dried up for a lot of tech companies like you would you would see liquidation preferences of like 2x 2.5x um and and those are still not coming back i think at least not in crypto um so but yeah i think like board seats definitely also instructed by fdx and the lack of just there's like no board altogether. I think people are now pushing more so to have a board seat if you're the lead investor. Um, but the structure remains the same. It's just the valuation of it has come down dramatically. Um, and and that's really compelling as an investor. Um, I guess as an anecdote, the second piece that, I, that I'm, I'm monitoring and looking at more closely now is just overall tech valuations, like secondary market valuations and what people are selling. Uh, you know, there's a fair number of platforms that one can have access to if you're an institutional investor in the U.S., like Equity Zen and a few others, where you see secondary market. Like these are like either existing investors, whether it be employees or venture funds, that are selling shares. Sometimes common, sometimes preferred. So naturally, just as a one-on-one, preferred shares have more rights, um, are higher up in the capital structure, so should have a higher value than the common. Um, and and if people are selling, if you see preferreds being offered in the market, that means an institutional investor, i.e. a venture fund, is selling. And I think that's a bigger signal than common, unless it's a founder selling, um, like founder shares. But uh, a lot of these valuations, like the price that is being transacted out in these secondary marketplaces is like consistently 40, 50, 60% down the last round. Uh, more, more than high that. Quality. I, I think I think even more than that is what I'm seeing. Like more we, more uh, than that too. I saw a deal earlier this week. It was they had they had I think their last public raise was 10 billion plus. Uh, they maybe a month ago I saw secondary sh- sh- uh, shares come through at three billion. It's like wow, it's down 70 percent, 80 percent. Now uh, this uh, I think it was on Monday or Tuesday I saw them come through at like 1.5 or 1.8. Mm-hmm. I'm like that's mm-hmm. now you're down 90 percent. In the secondary, so yeah, yeah. I, mean, I not, think not, I, w- again, I would assume in line like with my crypto. yeah. My, my my take on that is I think who's selling those shares right now are the non crypto VCs, like the the tigers of the world. Not I'm not saying actually tiger, but like the non crypto native institutions who maybe got in late in the cycle, didn't actually believe in crypto, chased the narrative. Now they're looking at their book and saying like, just get me out of this asset class. I don't want anything to do with this. I don't believe in it long term. Uh-huh. Like you, you had that tweet earlier this week or last week. You're yeah, like, yeah. continue holding crypto if you believe in X, Y, Z. And I think there are a lot of folks who don't believe in that. So they're doing yeah. what you should do when you don't believe in something in your portfolio, which is dumping it. Yeah. And you were talking specifically about crypto equity investments. Crypto equity investments. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking just generally about like just tech. Like uh, yeah. So oh, I mean, tech. yeah, tech deals are, I mean... Like, like yeah, these are like, you know, free ports of the world, just like traditional tech unicorns uh, that are not public yet. Um, there's a fair amount of secondary activity going on and at, at pretty indiscriminate prices. Um, and so that that uh, I'm looking at that fairly closely because I think it's one of the more instructive metrics to understand where we are in the cycle, meaning. Like if someone is willing to let go of something at like that discount, psychologically, like you could putting aside the idea, is it worth, is this asset worth this much? 
billion or 10 billion? Because sometimes you don't have a lot of insight into the, the current valuation burn rate, a couple of other things, right? But just from a psychological level, it is very hard, I think, for an institutional investor that to swallow that amount of a haircut, um, where a lot of times it's permanent capital. Sometimes, as you alluded to, it could be a tiger fund, like a hybrid fund that is marking to market and has redemptions. But if you're a venture fund and you're selling at that level, I mean, you must be really hurting because you have like five, 10 years of permanent capital. And so anytime you see an actor do that, you have to wonder, like, how bad is it for them? Is it bad for other people? Who's buying on the other side? And you saw a lot of secondary market activity, like a lot pick up in like the trough of the last cycle in crypto. Um, Like in January of 2019, we were seeing some what now made or broke funds, to be honest, like framework. Right bought a huge chunk of SNX at like just at the pure bottom. This is January, 2019. And, you know, at Parify it's public now, but you know, we, we did a fair amount of like just direct buying from teams and because that's really the only way you could like when an asset, when an asset is not very liquid and now you have a combination of a lot of, a lot of liquidity haven't dried up in the market by virtue of all the blowups. Um, so a lot of these projects, if you want to get access to, you need to go and, and buy from an existing investor or directly from treasury of the team and or founders. And if you, and if you start seeing a lot of that, that then it, it to me is always the more interesting metric that I'm looking at now to understand where we're on the cycle to go back to your original question. Is that happening right now, Santi? Are funds buying, are they still, do you still buy direct from protocols from their treasuries? Like, I, I remember that was a thing a couple of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. where I think we like pioneered that, that, to be honest, at Parify. I, well, I think you, I think you guys did nail that at Parify. You guys had a whole fund. And then you that. saw like, and then, and then like Lido did, did the direct thing to, and right. Sushi tried to do with this. Dragonfly, with like, I think that was. or Dragonfly. Well, it did it with Parify. Or maybe it was Electric. I forget Dragon. who it was. Yeah. It was it was Dragonfly that tried to do yeah. that at Lido. I think it, it got rejected. I don't know if it went through, but Paradigm did it at Lido, and there was a proposal from Lightspeed when Amy was there um, to do it with Sushi, and got rejected. But yeah, that, that uh, well, not so much in crypto. Um, I think, but a lot of teams that have that hold like ten, twenty percent of the tokens under treasury, maybe more are exploring the possibility. They're kind of in a tight spot because the prices come down so much on the liquid token that even if they wanted to raise something to extend their one way for like 18 months or another year, that 10% of the treasury is not even worth that much. Uh, So it's really tricky to in a very tricky position that they're at where they can't really sell from treasury because it's not even going to accomplish what they want now, which is extend their runway. So yeah, it's really tough. Actually, a lot of teams here are are facing that, um, and they're kind of. I don't see a easy way out of that kind of because uh, you might try to raise like when when you're a project that you're still very early stage, but for whatever reason you launch the token and that token is down ninety percent, ninety five percent. 
you know, market caps of 20 million or so, and you have 10% of that, like that's 2 million, maybe that buys you another year, but you still have to going to have to cut meaningful amounts of headcount and whatnot. And so in, in practically speaking, you're not even, you don't even want to sell hundred percent of your treasury. Right. Um, so it's, it's a very difficult position that a lot of teams are in right now that I think they're just going to have to close shop. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, I think, I mean, next year is just going to be a bloodbath for crypto startups. Like I think the first for folks to get impacted in the market to, in like from all this, you know, starting with Luna into like three arrows into, into FTX, into Genesis was like f- uh, firms who basically touched the markets in some way or another. Right. And what's going to happen next year is I think you're going to have a lot of the 2021, 2022 startups run out of money. Some of them are going to get acquired. A few will be able to raise new rounds, but at like an 80% down round. Uh, and then this is going to have all these other second, second order impacts, right? Tech salaries are going to come down. Tech jobs are going to come, are going to deflate. Uh, VCs are going to start. I mean, the, the GBT3 narrative is hitting at a actually pretty interesting time right now because like naturally VCs start investing in other sectors. If, if you're a VC right now, you're like, ooh, shiny new thing, AI. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. To I be fair, though, tougher for a lot of yeah. I, I think uh, was it Sequoia or someone else that has a great memo on this? Um, you know, these are times where if you're in a position of strength, there's a lot of crypto startups that raise meaningful rounds that you could have argued were too too much capital thrown at them. This was true for last cycle too. Filecoin, Hashgraph, Definity, a number of other projects raised you know hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, now you have similar well-capitalized startups that they're not going to run out of cash. They're probably like, and they're in a very strong position to go out and acquire talent. And, you know, these pr- include without bias or without particular order, but like Arbitrum, Astic, Starkware, um, Optimism, um, Uniswap, Uniswap. Uh, yeah, so exactly. So I think, you know, that is going to be certainly a lot of M&A activity is going to happen next year. Uh, aqua hires, uh, for sure. And I think, uh, you know, people that are surviving, this is true of any cycle, are going to emerge in a very strong position. Um, you know, to be fair, I mean, a lot of times the other thing was how healthy is the the private VC market today? I'll just make one observ- or a couple observations. One, sometimes rounds don't get announced, down rounds particularly. So there's a selection bias where only the up rounds that were negotiated maybe six months ago are announced today. For instance, like I'm thinking of ASIC. They raised like, what, $100 million from A16Z recently? That may have gotten negotiated months ago in a different market environment. Because the market environment has changed so much since March when the Fed started hey, uh, you know, raising rates uh, at an unprecedented rate, like seven rate hikes. It went from 0% Fed funds rate to like four and a quarter. Uh, and you look at like Katie Hahn, for instance, it raised a massive fund, Hahn Ventures. She was publicly, you know, on Bloomberg just discussing how meaningfully she's just like not deploying right now and just being very opportunistic because she thinks like there's going to be more opportunities to, to buy at a lower price. Um, and so, you know, you have a number of other funds that have raised capital. So the other observation is a lot of times the headline number that they say, hey, you know, fund X raised 100 million, 500 million. A lot of times that capital might not be committed. 
And when they go out and try to call that capital from investors, that may not come through. And so the amount of dry powder might be, you know, I would probably haircut that by 50% maybe as like a true deployable dry powder. Um, but yeah, so I think, um, you know, we're still seeing a fair amount of deals get priced at, you know, flat or up rounds for teams that are continuing to do progress across a number of kind of verticals. As you said, I think the most important thing is what's in, last cycle. It was like DeFi and then NFTs that like kicked off. It was DeFi that really kicked off last cycle, uh, putting macro aside because macro is not an issue for pure crypto. The question is like it, people are really bearish on crypto right now. Sentiments low. What's going to be that, that one or two catalysts that ignites the next market from a secular perspective, it renews interest in crypto. Like obviously the obvious answer for some might be, it's going to be macro. It's all dictated by macro, but to some extent, I think, yeah, macro might come back up, but investors might just turn to the next shiny thing, which is probably AI. So what's going to be that, that catalyst that gets people really excited about crypto. And I've had a fair amount of discussions with people about this. And I think it's gaming. I continue to think it's gaming. Um, maybe there's other stuff, but I think gaming to me feels like like that killer kind of use case. It gets people really excited about coming back to crypto. Developments. I think next week is going to be the, the the big the big episode, right? The the predictions episode, the crossover episode with uh, Mike and Mark Yusko hitting it from maybe they'll they'll hit it from more of a macro perspective. We'll take uh, maybe the more degen perspective here. I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about that conversation, but there were some interesting developments this week. So the first place I wanted to start is uh, is actually with Visa. You know, we're in a bear market when the most exciting news of the week came from Visa. Uh, and uh, what, what actually happened, so Catherine Gu uh, came on Twitter. She shared, uh, She's an infrastructure and crypto specialist at Visa, took to Twitter to share uh, some, some news about the company's exploration into actually account abstraction which is this widely dis uh, discussed topic in the ETH community. Um, specifically, uh, she, she kind of shared news about Visa's ambition to become the, as, as she put it, or as they put it, to become the liaison between the real world and crypto by implementing uh, account abstraction to give externally owned accounts, EOAs, uh, which you can think of, that's like a, that's a MetaMask wallet, for example, more functionality. And specifically, I think if I understand it correctly, um, their team worked with Argent uh, to deploy an auto pay feature on a private chain on StarkNet. So this is a pretty interesting development to see someone as big as Visa. I mean, Visa's always pushed the boundaries in like the traditional, I think of them and Stripe as like pushing the, uh, the kind of innovation card pretty uh, strongly in the, in the payment space. It's really them and Visa in my mind. And it's just cool to see them experiment. I've I've a a pro and a con here, um, but I think in general it's cool to see them experimenting with things like Argent and Starknet and like uh, account abstraction, which is this idea that Vitalik introduced a couple of years ago. So yeah, I'd love to I'd love to get your take on this. Yeah, super exciting, and again, super positive headlines get buried in bear markets. Um, Visa, I mean, first was uh, has historically been fairly ahead of the curve in terms of stablecoin adoption. And and you're right, I mean, this is a big deal. Not only huge validation for, for um, Stark, you know, StarkNet, um, but also just maybe setting up 
a path towards like payments, right? Because payments has been one of those areas where people have been really excited about payments as being like a killer use case. Uh, but it hasn't really taken off, right? Because you have stable coins and, you know, pay, like micropayments and just auto purchases and like that whole area has been largely kind of, um, you know, underdeveloped and hasn't really taken off. And so this, this to me feels like, again, largely enabled by the efficiency that you can get through an L2 environment like StarkNet. Uh, and anyone that wants to refresh their memory on StarkNet, go and listen to the episode that we recorded. Um, with the starting guys, uh, I think is really interesting, right? Um, so, you know, not to mention, you know, the huge distribution base that <laughs> you know, Visa has. Um, uh, and so I think it's a super positive development. Yeah. So there's a backstory here to this announcement, which I think is a pretty interesting one. They did an internal hackathon, I think, which is how this, uh, which is which is actually where this came out of. So. In my mind, first off, that's just a really good sign when a company is big, a public company as big as Visa and someone who's been a, around as long as Visa does an internal hackathon or competition um, and can drive, drive innovation inside the firm all the way up to where the point to, to the to where they're actually doing like press releases around this and like and, and product launches. So um, that's like just bottoms up innovation that I think is really impressive. So the backstory from what I know about this is there was an internal hackathon in like February or March uh, around like one big problem, which was how can a, an, an Ether owner pay a bill with crypto at a future date while temporarily away from Internet? Right. So how could this how could someone who owns ETH pay a bill at a future date while temporarily away from Internet service? So. That's a pretty interesting, like that. It's just interesting to see Visa taking on these like real, real world challenges. And there are a lot of people who have taken this on, right? There was actually EIP 1337, I think it was around subscriptions. Um, there, there are, there are some like smaller companies that have tried taking this on like streaming payments and subscription payments on ETH. And look, this is still a private network on start. Like it's still not fully out there in the world yet to play with, but like I think it's very cool. Shout out to Catherine and their team um, for, for making this happen. Yeah. I mean, when you think about like, there are certain friction points when one tries to subscribe, um, get access to paid behind the wall content in traditional, like the stack right now of uh, you go to a website, try to subscribe to a particular web, you know, service. Uh, there's a lot of card abandonment, if you will. And certainly there are companies on the margin that have made this much more efficient. Certainly some like Apple pay, uh, is super efficient now, you know, um, and and Apple is introducing more security measures. But still, again, like um, we know the challenges and limitations of working with Apple can be really tough at times. Uh, Some like Visa is always, you know, thinking, hey, how can we make, you know, it's it's fairly interesting now where, you know, people always talk about the institutions are going to come to crypto. And I think like in many ways, they're going to come for the sole reason that this is a first and foremost, like a pretty grassrooty um, retail first market. And, you know, there's, I was looking at like for the predictions episode, the amount of stable coins in circulation, I thought was going to be like 1 trillion this year. It certainly isn't. It's like 150 billion, uh, which is still a lot, a, a large number across many number of users worldwide. Visa is a worldwide network. And so I think stable coins continue to be like a, this kind of Trojan horse killer product that maybe many, many people want to use and could meaningfully like streamline a lot of the friction points when someone tries to make a transaction uh, and the settlement of that. 
And it's fairly interesting. Just the last observation I'll make is a lot of times the narrative in crypto is product X is going to blow up uh, a legacy player and is going to render that particular service useless. And I think there was another, uh, there's one episode where I think it was brought on by a particular founder that said, no, crypto, crypto just amplifies a particular service, existing service. And it's like net positive to the existing solution. And I think it's really refreshing to one kind of get around that take. Um, and certainly Visa, I think, believes it, right? If they want to continue to be relevant for maybe younger generations that can you know, skew more towards using crypto products and, and things like stable coins, like they're thinking ahead in, in how they capture and acquire and retain and maintain relevance in over the next 10 years with younger generations that are going to be more crypto savvy. So it starts, the journey for that starts today, not like in five or 10 years, you know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And this is, all right, so there's two things in my mind. Let's like, when, when something like this comes out, you want to think about the second order implication of it, right? And there, there are two things that are interesting in my mind. One is uh, like, this solves an actual real world problem. So crypto, like a genuine, uh, auto payments are a genuine pain point in consumer payments from actually a merchant cost perspective. And what I mean by that is, uh, so recurring payments, if you actually look at them, like from an in the inside out, they they generate a new fee for each individual payment, where arguably you're really just kind of making a single payment, but there's a new fee that's that happens every time there's an individual payment. And um, I remember, oh man, I, I, I got to find this Wall Street Journal article. There's a Wall Street Journal article about how banks actually asked Apple uh, in, I think it was last year, to treat recurring payments as a single charge back then. And... I don't know, Visa, like Visa solution to this u- using Argent's wallet and account abstractions, like pretty, pretty interesting. So like, I think that's why it's interesting in my mind is it actually solves a real, real world problem. The other thing is, does this unlock? So like the, the background of, of, um, uh, of these accounts is that like the, the way that Ethereum works right now is, so there, there are two different types of accounts. There's like EOAs, like MetaMask, externally owned accounts. Um, or like user accounts might be a better way to put it. And then contract accounts, which automatically run the code, like the, the smart contracts. What I think this visa proposal does, which again is similar to EIP 1337, is it essentially merges the two into a single account, which turns the smart contract for executing commands into a software wallet, which can now store crypto. Um, and, and that's what account abstraction is. So if if I remember correctly, you probably remember this better than I than I do. But the idea of turning a smart contract into a wallet itself is this was proposed a long time ago by by Vitalik back in like 2015. It was formalized in the last bull market in 2017 um, as I think the original proposal was EIP 86 or 96. I want to say I think it was 86. But this has been stagnant for a really long time. So. One thing that could happen here is like Visa's proposal could rejuvenate interest in this if like Vitalik actually like marks it as a draft or however Ethereum proposals work these days. Um, And so what ends up happening there is like, what if, I don't know, like think about the second order implications for NFTs, for example, like the business model of NFTs is a one-time drop and then royalties. Maybe you could see NFTs moving to a subscription-based business model, for example. So, like, I think there's all these second-order things that will come from this. There's like renewed interest in in uh, in subscriptions mm-hmm. on the blockchain. Yeah, 
back in the day, thought. I still remember. Yeah, it's, it's a great thought. I think there's still a fair amount of friction in payments in traditional tech land. The like for a SaaS company, for instance, like renewals and the and the dropout rate because you can't like charge that credit card again for like retail SaaS like um, is is staggering. There's like billions of dollars that are you know um, lost because the flow is not very streamlined. And as you said, if you think about it, like if you signal intent to subscribe for a year, you know, and you could do that through a smart contract. Uh, and maybe you can revoke uh, permissions, you know, um, based on certain terms and conditions. But anytime that you can codify that, then it's going to be much better than the current flow, which still has a lot of dropout and friction points. And so um, this is, uh, I mean, there's like a fair amount of well-capitalized startups, some of which have been acquired, Bolt and some others that have tried to like optimize that payment flow. Um, which is still not fully there there. And you could largely solve that through account abstraction and like a smart contract. Yeah. it's a, There's like this interesting dichotomy though between being really excited about this and then on the other side, like the the oligopoly of Visa is one of the main reasons I think like that, that get people into crypto, right? Like merchant fees, cross-border fees, really inefficient rails, like... I think it's one of the motivations for people to build in crypto. So it's just like, I'm not, like my brain is trying to be, is, is wrapping its head around like, man, like really, really excited about this, but also like, oh man, like rent seeking visa coming in and doing this. Like, should I be excited about it? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But in some way, shape or form, like the amount of fees that, you know, a network like visa can attain over the next 20 years, I think they probably looked at themselves in the mirror honestly and said, yeah, that's not going to be the case. So we need to add additional business lines and functionality to grow them over time because charging, you think about like a Wells Fargo or, or sorry, like a, you're like a, some of these remittance payment operators that used to charge 8% to move money cross border. Like that's going to like go away meaningfully, like TransferWise, Revolut, some of these companies have made it, have really attacked their business model. And so then they turn to like crypto rails, you know, look at like Bitso, for instance, that has taken a meaningful share of their immense flow business. Like, you know, in many ways, like whether you want to accept it or not, but like any, you know, your margin is my opportunity kind of thinking like any, like Peter Thiel says is better, like best, which is anytime margin is artificially high, that's going to go away at some point. It's going to go to yeah. like near zero at some point. So However, you can milk that for 10, 20 years or whatever, but it eventually a new technology comes in and, and evaporates that. And so can you outlive that? And I think Visa is probably really smart in coming out and trying to get ahead of the curve. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great. Uh, I don't know. No Ponzi's, no tokens. I think it was Polinia who, who responded to this. I was like, no Ponzi's, no token chill, no conspiracy theories, yeah. just a real world problem with a viable solution. And I like it. Also, yeah, I think it's I think it's time for uh, account abstraction to like come into the mainstream mm -hmm. in crypto, right? Because mm -hmm. if, you, if you think about the way that we do things in crypto today, it's actually pretty inefficient. Uh, so like if you use a dApp on Ethereum, you have to make a new transaction for every single on-chain transaction, which is... I mean, it's just a pain in the ass, honestly, when gas fees are super high. But with account abstraction, you can now bundle transact like multiple transactions into one and then execute the sequence of 
of operations in like one, I think they call it an atomic transaction, I'm pretty sure, or like a multi-call transaction, something like that. So like, if you look at Uniswap today, it requires, if you want to provide liquidity on liquidity on Uniswap, uh, like thinking back to it, you, you approve each of the two tokens, then you deposit them with multi-call. You could basically just do this in one transaction, which is like quicker, easier, more, more secure as you remove the need for like this infinite approval. Um, I don't mm-hmm. know. I think I think, it's, I, yeah. I think it's a natural next step. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think more thinking should go into, and I'm sure other people. If there are certain people that are, are smarter here, we should bring them on because maybe a key theme next year will be now that you've deployed all this infrastructure, particularly like you know L2s and maybe you know interoperability across chains and what have you. Like, what are some of the more real, tangible use cases that can be embedded in traditional workflows? These are one example, but I'm sure there's many others, and so. Maybe more thinking should should be applied to that as opposed to just forking Uniswap and deploying another chain, you know. And so um, that was that was a theme that I had last year, which is what are some of the use cases that have been tried, haven't worked, but as you deploy more infrastructure, uh, then then maybe you should reconsider that, right? And and so it, it's maybe time to think about that a bit more. And it's really exciting to see a company like Visa actually start, re, you know doing that um which is is fairly exciting you know, having a hackathon thinking about account abstraction is is great yeah i can see a world where you know you open like the visa app it feels like a normal app with no seed phrase like just your biometric but really there's an account abstraction abstracted wallet on the back end you can make usdc payments to your merchants or apps instant settlement to merchants no bank fees non-custodial Boom! Mass adoption is coming. Super exciting. Um, but I think, but I think, like one question that you know the visas of the world, I'm sure, are thinking about is like when, like in today's world, there are card fees, but right now they're abstracted away from the consumer. So, like, how do you get a consumer to switch away from that? It has to be such a better experience. Um, so, but I don't know. Kudos, kudos to Visa for the research. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing a live deployment. Right? Yeah. Uh, when when normies ask me a question around like where's crypto going why does it need to exist these are common themes and questions that we get asked especially in the holiday season and it's always like i always like bring up my phone and say look look at all the apps that you have and maybe that doesn't change in the next five years maybe you still love and use your wells fargo your bank of america chase your your whatever revolut but maybe the apps don't change but what the apps leverage in terms of the backend will probably most of your apps and your smartphone in the next five years, 10 years, will be using crypto in one way, shape or form. You may not even notice that, but what you will notice is that consumer benefit that you talk about lower, maybe you get approved for your mortgage in seconds and maybe the rate that you get um, is very compelling. Um, And maybe, you know, the, the, the options that you have and what you can do with your capital with whatever is just meaningfully the menu of options just expands dramatically. And so I think that's the more exciting thing here that uh, when uh, crypto over the last 10 years has, has put the user a lot of responsibility on the user to understand this technology, especially at, at the infrastructure level. And that historically has never been the case of mainstream adoption. Like people don't like to think about how an airplane or a car or a bicycle works or the much less the internet, which is much more abstract. 
um, they start just kind of using it if, uh, if, if they get a tremendous amount of benefit. And, uh, you know, back to the initial question, I think, I think we're closer to that than most people, I think, feel. Because um, a lot of their judgment is really clouded with macro. Um, but I'm fairly optimistic that a lot of the core work at the infrastructure level has been done. And as you stitch together and deliver workable products in the next, like next year, we'll start seeing that. You already started seeing some like pretty cool games launch and some of these like applications. And, you know, you're going to, it takes one or two really cool applications to really like ignite this movement. And so, um, yeah, I think uh, assuming that crypto is going to hit mainstream when people start like understanding how to set up their own private like they're, they're manage their own keys and, you know, set up their own wallet is unrealistic. Um, but I think there's a, a number of builders from our vantage point that we're investing in that have that top of mind and, and are going to, and are going to think from a user centric standpoint first for the first time ever, really, now that you have really good infrastructure to support uh, the backend. Yep. Speaking of gaming, um, yeah. big announcement from Yuga this week, Yuga labs, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. obviously creator board ape yacht club. Um, Appointed the Activision Blizzard president Daniel Allegre as its new CEO. Um, pretty big news. I mean, Activision in my mind, like Activision Blizzard is the creator of World of Warcraft, Call of Duty, Diablo, like a bunch of big blockbuster games. Um, Microsoft is currently attempting to acquire them for like I think seventy billion dollars. TBD on if that goes through, obviously or not. So, uh, high level thoughts on this one. Yeah, anytime you see a, that kind of executive move over to crypto, it just further validates and also lowers the career risk for other executives out there that might be thinking and exploring crypto in a very uh, so huge splash. Um, I think that trend will probably continue to persist. Like, let's just face the facts, right? If, <laughs> the reality is, if you're a, a, an executive, maybe your four hundred one k or your the value of your options for if you're working at a tech startup has gone down dramatically, but you still think about like career risk, right? And a lot of times crypto has been, you know, very hard to manage that risk for a lot of people because you sort of feel like it's like going to like an activist fund in, in FinTech, like in traditional, in TradFi. Once you go to like a, an activist fund, you're not going back to a normal hedge fund or like you're just branded as like, you know, so I think, that barrier has slowly gone down and continues to go down. Um, and so, yeah, it's just, again, really exciting to see someone like that. You know that he has millions of other options to do whatever the hell he wants. And the fact that he's chose crypto, I think is representative of a lot of founders that I see now that are coming to crypto and they have like, they could just, you know, sail away into the horizon for the rest of their life because money's, you know, they, they've just made it and they could do whatever. But, you know, Mark Andreessen said it best, and which is smart people want to work on hard problems and want to work collectively and build in an open source environment versus a closed one. And I think that is a key hallmark of crypto from a human capital standpoint. And the clustering of that is bar none. Like that's just a hallmark of was Silicon Valley in the early days uh, still is, but like open source in a distributed context trying to solve really hard problems, account abstractions, zero knowledge proofs. Like it is just really fascinating stuff. And there remains a lot of unsolved challenges that I think smart people want to naturally 
take up the challenge. And so it's really exciting to see. And I think we'll hopefully continue to see more of that trend continue. Yeah. I saw a lot of posts on Twitter that were like, this is just a washed up web two exec who, you know, is coming into web three for a, for a big paycheck and doesn't care about the mission and the tech and NFTs will only be able to succeed as a countercultural movement. And, uh, that seems like a very small minded view. I would say, um, it's like, okay, NFT, like what's most great movements start as a countercultural movement and eventually grow past that. So I think the, Things like this, like Visa and then Daniel Allegra joining you guys, their new CEO, are like almost one in the same in my mind. It's like it's crypto growing up, which has a, is bad for the ethos of crypto probably, but is good for the industry growing up and like getting bigger and like this technology infiltrating like industries. So it kind of depends on which viewpoint you, you, you come at it with. Um, I think this is one of the is probably the biggest hire ever in the NFT space. I think this is a, a massive hire. Um, I think it'll be really, really, really good for you guys. Obviously, his like is crazy. You mean it's not Kid Kim Kardashian, Floyd Mayweather, and some of these folks issuing NFTs? Actually, those were that, uh, I, I was more thinking of Trump <laughs> issuing NFTs. Uh, that, that, that was the biggest news of the year. Uh, yeah. 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 No, he's got like, look, he's got, obviously, he's got, when you hire someone like this, they don't just come with experience. They come with access to talent. They come with deal flow. They have come with a knowledge of like, I love that they hired a COO, not a CEO. Like he comes with a, a, a knowledge of like how to run a massive operation that has billions on their balance sheet. Um, the bearish view is probably like, he's not scrappy enough for a startup environment. I still, I, you know, that's a fair counter argument. Like the time will tell. Um, I actually think the more interesting experience in, in, uh, is actually not his two years at Activision. It's his 16 years at Google, where he was the company's president of global and strategic partnerships and their president of shopping and payments, as well as their president of Asia Pacific and Latin America. Like you don't, you don't get those titles at Google un unless you can execute. Um, and he did that for 16 years and like, yeah. So if we're going to compete about against Facebook, yeah. yeah, if you're going to compete against and build the real metaverse and try to compete against uh, someone like Facebook, you need to bring in a lieutenant like him. Like he's general that you need to like muster the the collective effort and keep people in line. Um, and I, uh, I don't think you break the ethos. I think you just bring discipline of how to scale and build an operation that is, it's a tall order to build a metaverse. People, if Facebook can't, hasn't successfully done it and people getting a lot of criticism to assume that a, a scrappy startup is going to be doing this without like credit, like, like Google brought in Eric Schmidt at a right time where the company needed someone like him and Larry and Sergey took the role that they are creatives, but you need leadership like Eric who had a ton of experience before coming to Google. And I think Eric was instrumental to Google's, um, you know, continued success over the years and like really revamping and, and like bringing on different business lines and bringing structure to an organization that has grown an alphabet and what it is now uh, and their dominance in the, in the search market. Like, I think Eric played a huge role in that. Yeah. And I think maybe that's the kind of thing that we'll see here. Yeah. I sent some texts out just asking about this guy being like, is this guy the real deal? The texts I got back were like, I mean, he, he, so here's, here's some things I didn't know that I, that I'd learned about him. He joined Google to, to basically create their presence in Latin America. Like what a crazy initiative. Uh, 
and he he joined the year that they launched Gmail. So like he's not someone who came in when like Google was this massive platform already. I mean they're already big by 2004, but like 2004 they had they didn't even have Gmail. Um, and I I haven't like fact checked these dates. I think, but I think it sounds like 2004 is when they launched Gmail. And so he came in to like grow that. He did such a good job in Latin America that he then went to Asia and did the same same thing, opening up their offices in China, India, and Southeast Asia, and basically led their like mobile expansion into into APAC, which is pretty like, boom, that's crazy in and of itself. Then he led their uh, engagement strategies across news, media, entertainment, and telco, and created their monetization strategy across uh, maps. So he did that, then had success there, and then went and did that again on the shopping side of the business. So led he basically led their like global shipping program. And one thing that I got a text about what he did is like he was responsible for figuring out their logistics and last mile delivery from their shipping strategy, uh, from their from their shopping strategy. Like anyone who's worked in shipping knows that last mile delivery is one of the most complex things to figure out. So like, I don't know. When I first saw this, I was like, mm, splashy hire, not excited. When I when I dug deeper, I'm like, I think this was a brilliant hire by by them. So yeah. Bullish Absolutely. Daniel Allegra. Yep. Daniel, if you're listening, we'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> I, I pinged him. Didn't get a response though. <laughs> yeah. oh, well, nothing, nothing so far. <laughs> if someone that knows, well, maybe someone that knows Daniel. Maybe who knows him. On our behalf. Holler. Yeah. Thank you very Holler. much. Happy holidays. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, any, what, what else? What else happened this week? Uh, um, oh, should we BCG? cover the, the FTX stuff? Uh, DCG and FTX, probably the two things that we can breeze through. Not to like, I know people oh, are tired man, about you haven't, you haven't been around the last couple of weeks, Santi. I'm ridiculously tired of talking about FTX, but we can. Yeah, uh... well, the, the only thing about FTX is Sam signed the extradition papers. He went to the emergency room. God knows what happened in this prison, which is ranked top five prisons in the world, worst prisons in the world. So I think he changed his course of mind and said, no, I'd rather be in a U.S. jail. So he's now, I think he was boarded a plane yesterday that the U.S. sent. He's in custody by the FBI. He's in the U.S. now. Trial could be as soon as next Thursday, I believe. Um, Caroline and Gary, his other co-founder, turned against him and are cooperating with the feds, maybe others potentially. I don't know what's happening with Sam Trabuco, Ryan Salami, some of the other high executives in FTX and whether they're cooperating with the feds. But uh yeah, that's quickly the rundown. And the second, the bail was set at a quarter of a billion dollars for SBF, um, which is an interesting figure when you consider that it coincides closely with the number of funds that were hacked during the whole FTX kind of bankrupt, like before bankruptcy. Um, so, so yeah, I think uh, that's the latest on FTX, the minute on FTX. I would recommend reading the Southern District of New York's 38-page uh, document on this pretty interesting um it comes to light that this wasn't something that began in the bear market uh the way that they wrote it it makes it seem like this is something that's been happening since the beginning of the company's inception which would be a wild thing well, yeah, yeah. but you mean the the whole alameda ftx alameda like getting funds from customer deposits and then using those and yeah yeah, yeah, and it makes it seem like yeah. there was more than yeah. ten billion that was spent and lost. It no, is like yeah. I, I would just recommend reading this piece. Um, yeah, let's talk about DCG. So let me pull up Barry's tweet. So basically, so like as a quick reminder, so you've got Grayscale, subsidiary of 
DCG, they've been trying to pursue uh, turning their closed end fund, which is GBTC, into a Bitcoin spot ETF over the past, like, what feels like many years, and they keep getting rejected by the SEC. So Barry uh, hasn't been too vocal on this in the last couple of weeks, obviously, just because like Grayscale and Genesis and DCG are all going through some some tough times right now. He tweeted out a Wall Street Journal article uh, that had the caption, if Grayscale's Bitcoin ETF dreams fail, firm may try a tender offer. So if you if you dig into this, the options could include a tender offer for up to 20% uh, of the outstanding shares of the $10 billion trust, which is an interesting number, right? 20% of 10 billion, 2 billion. I've, I think that's the, the size of the whole of, for Genesis, right? So what they would do is that would be basically like a direct appeal to shareholders to sell their shares at a specific price. Um, the way... I think I see it as that DCG needs a needs a lot of cash to repurchase shares that are trading at well, it's like a forty five percent discount to NAV right now. This would help reduce the discount, which would in turn mm-hmm. improve the health of DCG's book value yeah, um, the margin. Yeah, yeah. Some are speculating that DCG needs to sell some of their liquid BTC or ETH holdings, um, which has the well. Has, you know, I don't know that that's more speculation, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm that, curious to get your take on, on that. Yeah, on that point. It was fairly interesting. Last Friday, there was uh, a lot of the top holdings of DCG took a big hit, like uh, near and like Zcash and if, like it, this may have been people in the market front running what they felt was going to be DCG like offloading a lot of these assets. But uh, I haven't confirmed that they were the seller, but it does feel like. Barry kind of also cryptically tweeted like it's happening without saying what was happening on Friday. But like DCG has a history of like like doing trades in low liquid environments. Like why would you do this on a Friday over the weekend? It felt to me like there was going to be an announcement coming this week around like the bankruptcy, maybe forced bankruptcy. It felt like the last straw for them to like recoup some capital and liquidity. But uh, yeah, it was really interesting. A lot of people in the market are also trading around the assets that DCG has maybe in anticipation of knowing that they're going to have to be a four seller at some point. So they're shorting them. And so, um, yeah, a lot of noise, but I do think that uh, it was interesting that a lot of the assets that DCG holds is, are, are, have, are taking a, an abnormally higher beating than the rest of the market. Uh, and this has been a fairly common trend this year, right? When like people get access to, they, they, they sign an NDA, they get access to like the, the book of a particular distressed player and then they short that, right? <laughs> Uh, in this case, DCG is very public around the assets that it has on the liquid side, especially. So, um, yeah, it's a uh, thing, uh, a narrative to watch and a trend to watch is as you look at all the carcasses of this year and what they hold and what maybe a bankruptcy court is going to have to settle or sell. Uh, these are assets that are going to probably underperform. Um, and, and we know the portfolios of a lot of the players like three arrows, um, and other funds in the space are going to have to liquidate. Yep. You think Genesis makes like what, what happens with the whole DCG business? Like does, does basically does DCG end next year with Genesis grayscale Coindesk? When you, you mean ends like they cease to operate and exist, they shut down. No, not, not. end. like, do they, what, what happens to these assets? Like, do they sell any of them off? Do they like, what are they? I think there's going to be a, a restructuring, maybe a consolidation of what the crown jewel of this business is, which continues to be, 
you know, the 200, 300 million of ARR that they get on management fees on the Grayscale products. Uh, from an incentive standpoint, I think it's, unless he really has to get, like, like he's not going to want to give that up. And by he, I mean Barry. Um, so who knows? Uh, I'm not very optimistic that this will be converted into an ETF uh, until we get, until the whole SBF and other regulatory stuff comes out and gets clarified and codified. I don't think that uh, we'll be seeing an ETF anytime soon. And so for that reason, I think that Grayscale continues to earn that nice fee and, and recurring cash flow. The, on the Genesis side, I don't think I too many predictions, which I'm terrible at, but uh, yeah, I think someone will have to step in because I'm not using, like, I, even though like certain parts of their business continue to operate, like, I think damage has been done. And on a reputation standpoint, it's, it's hard from the fiduciary standpoint as I'm trying to like work with them right now. I think a huge void in the market has been probably going to be filled. Uh, and then the next DCG will emerge. Uh, liquidity's really dry right now, continue to be dry. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know what you think. I don't have much insight here. No. I agree with that. I don't have much insight. Yeah. Are you um, buying Coindesk? <laughs> not to put you on the spot, but. <laughs> uh, no, no, I don't. Not, not at $300 million. <laughs> and folks, uh, this is where we close a round up. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, there's one, one other piece of news here, which uh, Binance is acquiring Voyager's assets. Uh-huh. I think. So FTX yeah, offered FTX- 1.2. 2 billion, right? 1.2. Yeah. And this bid comes in at like one, I think was one. the bid. Yeah. Yeah. So. 1.01 or whatever. Which I think in bankruptcy, how it works is it, you have to pay the fair market value of the assets, right? At today's current prices, plus some sort of fee. It like, it's not a normal bidding process, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not as familiar, but I yeah. think that that's right from what I read. Yeah. Um, no man, we're we're, so we're 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 I don't think we're we're not we're not buying CoinDesk. I do think there will be mm-hmm. consolidation in the in the crypto media space. Right now, you have a lot of players. Mm-hmm. You have like, I mean, you were on vacation when all the stuff with the block came out. But like right now, you have BlockWorks and the Block and CoinDesk and Decrypt and Cointelegraph and Defiant and NFT Now and mm-hmm. like all all these media companies. And uh, I would I would assume that that probably shrinks to three. Yeah. Well, I mean the, the no, I, yeah, I I do think. Well, I, I saw the block stuff. Like a video shattering to see how the one of the co-founders like had taken in a huge loan from SBF. Not so, not co-founder actually, not co-founder. But uh, sorry, it stepped in as uh, yeah, CEO. Yeah. Or whatever. yeah, pretty crazy. The amount of uh, interconnectedness. Uh, that's something that I did not expect. Um, but yeah, uh, we'll talk about that more tomorrow on predictions, and going to be really excited. I spent a, have, a lot of time. Do you have a prediction about crypto media? I think you're right. There's going to be huge consolidation. Not huge, but these businesses tend to shine and are kind of secular in respect of market prices. And sometimes interest grows a lot during the bear market. And there's a lot to cover, like a lot. I mean, movies are going to be made out of this stuff. And I think uh, it bodes well for crypto media. I think it's a great asset. Uh, Not to like, you know, pump your bags or anything, but uh, I think it's, we're going to see some consolidation. Maybe people entering the space want to have exposure to crypto crypto media feels like a good like like a good play uh, to, to capture the growth in the space 
yeah. without taking a particular view on, on prices. It's been interesting hiring actually right now because, so if you look back a year ago, it was, it was really hard to hire for anyone in crypto, but it was really hard for us to hire because, you know, you if you're an, if you're an applicant, like you look at like media company versus like, ooh, big exchange or or go work at a fund or something like that. And it was really hard to hire. And because, you know, like media is probably like more boring, I would say on paper than working at like some like crazy crypto startup that just raised $20 million. And now I will say hiring has been, has been the best hiring market. Like the, the number of amazing, like 10 out of 10 people that are joining Blockwork starting in January actually is like at a record high. And it's because it's like people like, you know, it doesn't matter if markets are going up or down, like you still need information businesses. So it's some fascinating so. reporting to be done and investigative journalism. And yeah, that I mean, is, Coindesk, uh, Coindesk, like Coindesk has, I mean, Blockworks has had amazing journalism, but like Coindesk kicked this off with Ian Allison's story. So big shout out to absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. No, this is like a great movie as we always end episodes with like great book and movie recommendations around journalism. One of my favorites is The Pelican Brief. Great novel, but movie oh, too about like yeah, Watergate. Huge. And there's another documentary that I saw on the plane, which talks about like the erosion of journalism across the world. And it covers different markets, Brazil, Mexico, the US, uh, and how so many like, towns have like newspapers have shut down and so they don't have like coverage and that's huge right i think the role of media a lot of times we talk about there's this growing distrust of media of fake news but i do still think that it's worth revisiting like media plays a huge role in empowering civic participation and and keeping checks and balances in place of like have arming citizens with information the problem is a lot of citizens don't trust the quality and the veracity of that information. But I do think that like there is a huge opportunity and I think you're seeing it in crypto where independent journalism, there's a place for that and, and voices can be heard and, and it brings to light like really remarkable stuff. And it really, I think media is going through this transition in the same way that it went from traditional print to online and the New York times kind of getting ahead of that curve and really reinventing their businesses and others not and failing but yeah, it's this maybe could be just a whole episode in of itself because you're at the vantage, like you're in a great vantage point to understand the transition that not just media for crypto, but just media in general, because uh, it's not going to go away. But how do you regain trust and how do you keep reporting the truth? Um, because I think that's where most people will continue to get their information. Um and it's not going to be in social media. I think it, it, maybe it's a combination, maybe it's some sort of different hybrid. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's super important. And I think media and so many people are just not in a good spot in terms of where they're getting information. Completely agree. Awesome, man. Good final round any books? of the year. What? Yeah, I know. Any, Before any books? any any books or or movies? I think this other that I have to say. This is the best time of year to watch Harry Potter. And if you don't like Harry Potter, which you know, it's, really it's always a good time of the year to watch Harry Potter for you. Something. And you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> but like Christmas is particularly special, like special to go back and watch Harry Potter. I will say if, you, if you're tired of in, if in a crazy world, you get tired of the, the six, the, the normal movie. There was the 20th year reunion documentary that was made and launched earlier this year. I actually watched it again on a flight it's great it's really really neat uh this 20th anniversary 
of Harry Potter and uh, a really good insight look into the different characters and how and just get their perspective. So I'd encourage everyone to go and, and, and see that. I just started, I, so I just finished the um, Teddy Roosevelt book about going down the Amazon for the first time. And he's like oh. an absolute maniac. And I want to read, he's a, this is nuts. Like he ran for president third time, lost, uh, went down the Amazon River when he's like 50 with his son, got su everyone got super sick. Like there were like yeah. native, a crazy book. Um, uh, I just started George Friedman's book called The Storm, The Storm Before the Calm. Um, mm. And that is, I'm 12 pages in, so I can't report back, but that is. Uh, What's that about? Basically, it's like the coming crisis of the 2020s. Uh, it's like, I God, think it's a little. You need more fear. Little, little doomsday. <laughs> I just, I'm, I'm leaning into the, it's, no, it's like, it's, it's a, it's a geopolitical book about like how everything's changing. I, th I have a feeling it's going to be a bit doomsday, -y, a bit like uh, if you've ever re read uh, The Fourth Turning, like I, I think it's like in that same category, but uh, it's come highly recommended from a couple, couple macro nerds that I love. So, yeah. Okay. Fantastic. Is this a good time to wrap it up and save our energy for tomorrow's big episode? This is a good time. Awesome. Well, it's great to be back uh, and hope everyone is doing well out there. If you're traveling for the holidays, hope you get home safe uh, and in time. And we'll be back tomorrow with our yearly predictions, which uh, was going to be a really fun episode. I'm looking forward to it. Indeed. All right, my friend. See you on the other All side. All right, my friend. Yep. Take care. Thank you, everyone.